I am extremely excited to be able to share this new sermon series called Endgame with you all. Now, I am not excited because it's Okay, I'm, I, I'm lying. I mean, I, I am excited in the sense that lately I was never a huge comic book aficionado or nothing like that. Like I wasn't super into, even though I did love superheroes, I was definitely more into X-Men than anything else growing up. But hey, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm like the many of you who have gotten all MCU crazy, falling in love with all of these Marvel characters throughout this whole really decade of movies that they've been producing. And if you haven't seen Endgame, then I don't know what you've been doing this summer because it was the number one movie in the world, man. The number one movie of the year, easy by far. And the reason why is because, man, this movie, Endgame, was more than a movie. It was an event. I mean, those of you who saw it, like, it was an event. And the reason was, the reason why is because it culminated, it, it kind of concluded this story that the Marvel Studios has been telling for over 10 years with almost 20, I think it's like the count is now 21, 22 movies, Endgame, becoming that final one. Over 20 movies, over 10 years, they were telling one story, and that story came to that climactic, big snap of the finger finish at the end of Endgame that was just really satisfying for a lot of uh, fans and really new fans, everybody else. It was great. And now, something about Endgame that some of you guys know, well, just the big theme, what was that whole story before I move on? Well, if you haven't seen it by now, look, you deserve for me to spoil this, so I'm sorry. But if you haven't seen it, you guys know the, and those of you that have, you know the big idea. There was this big mad titan named Thanos who wanted to really remake the world. He thought it was out of control, and he wanted to bring order into the chaos. And his idea, his idea was to be able to uh, really... And remove half of the universe and reset the universe. And he called that mass genocide mercy. He called it mercy. And he did it. He was able, he was able to accomplish his goal by collecting all of the infinity stones. And when one, with one snap of the finger, half of the world disappeared, including half of the Marvel superheroes and many of our beloved right, heroes that we grew to love. Now... Something that is really interesting about that whole idea is really, uh, which is the title, Endgame. Those of you, if you've seen the first movie, well, the previous movie to Endgame, Infinity War, uh, Doctor Strange comes up with the term. He says, when he gives the time stone to Thanos, he looks to Iron Man, Tony Stark, and he tells them, we're in the endgame now, right? We're in the endgame now. Those of you, if you know chess, I, which, by the way, I just recently found this out. I wasn't a big kid, per, big person into, I was into chess, but my middle son, my third, my second son, he is taking chess classes, and I heard of the term for the first time. I didn't know it was a chess term, and the chess term is called endgame. And what happens is ch in chess is that you have three phases of the game. You got the opener, which you begin the process and set, uh, strategizing and setting up your board. Then you got the middle game, and then you have the end game and the players enter the end game when there are few pieces remaining and then in the end game the strategy changes and now everything is on the attack and everything is very strategic in order to win the mate and then win the match right checkmate that's what your goal is that's what the point whole point of end game is so it makes sense why the studios they call the and the comic books they call it end game why well because there were few pieces remaining Half of the world disappeared. There were a ton of the MCU Marvel superheroes disappeared. There was only a few of them remaining. 
and they needed to be strategic about how they were going to defeat Thanos after they experienced that crushing defeat in Infinity War. Now, the Avengers aren't the only ones who are in an endgame. Us as Christians, when we read the Bible, we read the Word of God, we realize we are in an endgame right now. When Jesus came, the, resur- the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus ushered in a new phase in time, a new phase, a new age. And this endgame that God, that we are in right now, that Christians find themselves in right now, is something that we need to take seriously. See, when you go to the end of the Bible, you realize that Jesus isn't playing any games. I mean, that Jesus, the Jesus of Revelation is not the Jesus of the Gospels. I mean, he is, but he's different. I mean, the, the Revelation Jesus got tattoos on his thighs and his, his cloak is dripping with the blood of his enemies. I was like, what is this? I'm like, okay. I mean, Jesus, what's, what happened to you? And so now the thing is that Jesus is very serious in Revelations because he understands, he knows that the state of our eternal soul is not a game. So he doesn't pull punches when he writes to those seven churches. He makes sure that John, the revelator, right, as he sees and all that's happening in the end of times, he wants him to know and to communicate to the rest of us, like saying, man, this is not a game. This is not a game. Us as Christians, we need to take this seriously, and we need to approach our faith with wonder and awe. Because you and I cannot opt out of this war. We cannot opt out of this war. We need to choose a side. So like the Avengers, Christians, we are in our we are in an endgame. But unlike the Avengers, we will not get a second chance to defeat our mad titan enemy. Okay, the Avengers lost. Okay, they failed. They failed. Yeah, they were able to go back in time to figure things out. And they undid what was done. Well, look, you and I can't do that. When the end of time comes, you and I will not get a chance to go back in time to fix our mistakes, to go back and and redefeat the devil in areas of weaknesses that we had. We won't have that luxury. We only got one shot at this. That's why we must become aware. We must understand God's end game for the world and for us. But before we attack that and before we go there, we need to understand and become aware of the devil's endgame for us so that we might stand against him and against his plans and strategies so that we can look to serve and save others and preserve our own salvation. Now, I'm just going to go out out the gate and I'm going to tell you something right here. Here's here's the bottom line. The devil's endgame is to end you. Okay? The devil's endgame is to end you. He wants to destroy you. And this is not just me coming up with it. I'm just echoing Jesus. Jesus in John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. See, the enemy, the devil himself is a thief who wants to do nothing but rob you of the joy of knowing and being loved by God. And he will find any way possible to steal, kill, and destroy anyone. Now, let me tell you that the devil's plan to end you, he has two major strategies, two general strategies for everybody. And you who are listening to me, you are you will find yourself in one of these two categories. Number one is this. The devil's end game to end you has one major assignment. Plan A for your life the second you're born. Plan A, not even, even before you're born in the, in the womb. Plan A for your life is to kill you before you are saved by grace through faith. That's it. 
His plan, plan A for every person who has ever conceived in the womb is to kill that person before they come to a place of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He will kill you to keep you from being saved. But what happens if you are saved? The devil doesn't go, oh, shucks. Oh, well, well, lost another one. All right, so who's next? You know, he doesn't give up on you. I want you to know that. His plan does not change. He still plans to end you, even if you were a believer in Christ. In fact, I think you become a bigger target at that point. See, if the devil can't keep you from being saved by grace through faith, then the plan B for your life is to keep you from walking in your faith. So not only do you, you, you are not able to enjoy the fruit of your salvation, but you will be so discouraged and so distracted that you won't be saving anybody else. That's his goal. If he can't, if he can't keep you from getting saved, he wants to make sure you are so, destructed, or so dis, distracted and discouraged that you don't save anyone else. So it stops with you. If he can't steal, kill, and destroy you, he's going to try to steal, kill, and destroy God's purpose for you. That's facts. All right? And the one way that he'll go about it, well, Jesus told us how. Jesus told, He has one strategy on how to accomplish both plan A and plan B. You know what that is? Lies. John 8, Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. He is the father of lies. The only way, see, the devil is not like God. God can create. The only God, the devil can't create anything out of the whim, out of the blue. He can't create anything. All the devil can do is corrupt what has been created. That's it. The devil corrupts what has been created. So here's the truth of God. And he knows that the truth of God will lead you to saving faith and keep and get you to walk by faith and save other people. So what does he do? He wants to make sure you don't find the truth. That means that he needs to make sure you buy into his lies. That's the goal. How sad that Jesus says, I mean, even before Jesus, I was going to say something in Matthew 24, but in Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, Paul says that the devil is an angel of light. He's an angel of light. On the outside, whew, he looks like light, but on the inside, it's darkness. See, the devil is the king of, he takes the hook of the lie, but he baits it with something good. He baits it with something attractive. He baits it with something that feels like the truth, looks like the truth. But when you bite into it, you got hooked by the lie. See, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 12 through 14. He says something so sad that must have hurt his heart to say it out loud. He says that in the end, in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. And here he's talking, about, I think he's talking about not just people, but he's talking about believers too. People who claim to love God. He says the love, their love will grow cold. How? Well, he actually, in Matthew 12, chapter 24, he tells the conditions. He says, there will be increased lawlessness, lawlessness, the lack of law, not the lack of law, like everybody's all running around, you know, all purge style. Okay. But lawlessness means the lack of the law of God or the lack of truth. The more truth is repressed and hidden and corrupted, the love of many will grow cold. And there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians yet they have no relationship with the truth and there's no real love there. So we have to be careful that we don't buy into the enemy's lies because if not, he will kill, he will still kill and destroy our pur- God's purpose for us. And how do we go about that? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, the weapons of our warfare. See, Paul's not, Paul's not messing around neither. He's like, yo, we got some weapons. Y'all got to come up strapped. 
All right, strapped. And what do you do? Well, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So you can't buy this, okay, online. You don't need a, you know, need a per government permit for some of these. They're not of the flesh. You can't make these. You can't buy them anywhere. But they are divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. We just, and, and then he describes what kind of strongholds are they? Well, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, this, this mimics what Paul said to first Tim, in 1 Timothy 1, 8, 18 through 19, when he says, we need to wage the good warfare, fight the good fight and wage the good warfare. What warfare is he talking about? The warfare against the lies of the enemy. See, these are the strongholds that he is talking about. And what is a stronghold? Well, that term is kind of like a, is a little bit of a military term. See, when the lie of the enemy buries into your soul, into your mind, the longer it stays, it sets up camp. And the longer that lie remains, it's just, it's sent, it goes from a pop tent to a fortress to a brigade. I mean, it just increases and grows in strength. You ever seen a movie or in the movie or TV shows when somebody's trying to escape a, a prison or captivity and there's like booby traps along the way or there's different perimeters and parameters that if somebody gets past this wall, then there's this other thing to stop them or then there's this other thing that stops them there. Well, that's what a stronghold does. That when, when, they, when these lies embed in our brain and embed in our hearts, the more we run to the truth, the more we set off all the alarms. And this, this lie keeps us from walking into the truth. In fact, a stronghold is nothing but a lie that has a strong hold on you. You know what this is like. We've all experienced feelings, emotions, patterns in life that are destructive patterns. And we can't seem to break free from these patterns because these patterns have become a stronghold in your life. They have a strong hold on you that every time you want to go out and run and do something and be better and run to God or something like that, it stops you or you feel stuck. You feel stuck. But Paul says here, hey, these lies are nothing but they are. What are they? They're arguments, opinions, thoughts that come against the knowledge of God. And what is the knowledge of God? The truth of who he is. The, these lies want to get us to come again. They don't want us to know who God is because when we know who God is, everything is undone. So, but, but we have the ability to obey, make, take all of these things, tear them down so that even our thoughts obey Christ. See, even though these strongholds might have a stronghold on you, nothing is stronger than the love of God. There is not, these things cannot stop you from running to God and being found by God, okay? But we need to make sure that we understand how to wage the good warfare. And the weapon of our warfare is the truth. You fight lies with the truth. And here's the thing. The de demons and the devil have no defense. The devil has no defense against the truth. When you bust out the truth, the devil can't handle it. It's only when we wield dull swords, when we start hacking with a dull sword and we wonder, well, what's wrong with it? Well, it's, it's our handle on what the truth is. We need to know it. We need to know it. If the enemy is the father of lies, then we need to surrender to the father of truth, who is God. Now, the devil's endgame is to end you. And now, here's the thing, though. He doesn't do that personally, okay? Sometimes we look at the movies and we see, again, movies like Thanos and, and Endgame, where you got this evil that just looks unbeatable. I mean, the bad guys just look bigger and better and, like, impossible to defend and impossible to defeat. 
Listen, sometimes we think that the devil's like that with God, that God's like sweating out there like, oh, what am I going to do against this guy now? Oh, my gosh. I didn't see that coming. God's not like that. I mean, this is not even a fair fight. I want you to know that, that this is a crazy statement for many of you to process, but we, we see it in God's word that God will allow. He is allowing the enemy to operate in the world for his purposes. And in those purposes are for our good. That might be hard for you to believe, but that's what God says. But so the devil, you need to know that the devil is not like God. He's not everywhere. He's not all-knowing, all-powerful. He's not. In fact, he ends up deploying, which is point number two, the devil deploys demons to do his dirty work because he is not like God. He deploys demons to do his dirty work. And there's three things, three areas that I just wanted to briefly mention because I can go off on this one, but there's three key areas that when you let this one sin in, Oof, a whole bunch of other sins move in. And let me kind of go over some of those. The first one is bitterness. Bitterness is a tiny, invisible, insig- you know, little, little weapon of the enemy that we don't, you don't see coming. Okay, it's stealth mode. The bitterness walks in on stealth mode, yet it is crazy destructive. In fact, in Hebrews 12, 15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many have become defiled. Notice that the root of bitterness, man, bitterness is just a tiny seed. And a demon will wait for the right moment. He'll wait, for, he'll study. You know, demons study us. They look for our patterns. They observe when we are at our most weak and most vulnerable. Maybe it's, maybe it's certain times of the day. Maybe it's certain times of the month. Maybe it's during certain circumstances. And then when they see the right moment, and it's, it could be a traumatic moment, a discouraging moment, a frustrating one, they'll just throw that land, they'll just throw the little grenade of, you know, bitterness in there and just let it, with the timer, just let it settle. You didn't see it. You didn't see it because they buried it quick. But if you leave that seed of bitterness long enough, like the author of Hebrews says, man, you get rid of it because it, when it springs up, it causes trouble. Many have become defiled. See, here's what bitterness does. You know how bitterness, it creates this rotten roots that produces rotten fruits. And sometimes we try to handle the symptoms. Like we try to create solutions for the symptoms, but it's not the symptom, it's the root, it's bitterness. And sometimes bitterness comes out in jealousy, unforgiveness, anger, rage, Okay, those are all fruits that we try to we try to approach and handle the symptom when bitterness is the key of it all. See, bitterness, when you let bitterness settle and it, it could express itself in jealousy, like you're so bitter of your circumstances that you're always jealous of somebody else. Now, look, everything I'm going to say today, we all experience in one level or another. What I'm talking about is I want you to notice, do you see a pattern in your life? Do you see a pattern, a repetitive thing? So for some of us, there are people who are experienced and living with a pattern of jealousy. They are in ungrateful always for what they have, and they're always jealous of what other people have, and they're bitter because of it. See, the problem isn't jealousy. The, the problem is bitterness. They're not grateful. They're not grateful. Another one is unforgiveness. Sometimes somebody can hurt you, and you it causes you to, that bitterness is so rough that it keeps you from forgiving that person. But then it goes beyond that because that unforgiveness could lead to resentment. Not only resentment towards that person, but then you start resenting everybody else who you think, man, that person, that person should have been there for me. That person didn't do anything, but he should have. 
And now you start resenting more people and you start hurting and keeping, you know, that bitterness is destroying many relationships now because you've let it settle and it's defiling your heart. And you know what bitterness does? Like all of these things that I'm going to mention today, they all come against the knowledge of God. Now, how can bitterness keep us from the knowledge of God? Well, easy. See, if, if you're jealous of what other people have, you're not grateful for what you have. So you're really telling God, God, I don't like what you've given me. I don't appreciate what you have given me. If you are bitter about your life, you are telling God that it's his fault. I know you're not saying that out loud, but that's what you're saying. I want you to know that. Like, when you say those things, when you believe these things, you are believing a lie. When you, when you refuse to forgive someone, you are saying that that person is unworthy of love. You are saying that that person is unworthy even of the love of God. They don't deserve it. When you hold resentment towards others, you're holding back the thing that God tells you you ought to give them. And if you don't do it, you're saying, no, God, your way is not the right way. I said bitterness can also lead to anger, and that we see that in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, talking bad about people. Why? Along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving. See, that's what happens when you have the grace of God that Hebrews says. You need the grace of God to be forgiving, compassionate, loving, If you don't do that, you're going to be bitter. And bitterness can be expressed in anger. Like you could be so bitter about a hurt, a pain, a failure, that that anger now comes out and and, and you can be a person that has a a pattern of a short temper. You're easily triggered. Why? It's not because you got an anger problem. It's because you got a bitterness problem. It's bitterness that's at the root of it all. You need that. We need the grace of God to be able to uproot bitterness. Another big key catalyst kind of a sin is really the spirit of fear. See, the spirit of fear is something interesting because fear is a natural thing that we all feel. In fact, fear is a God thing. It's a good thing where we have this sense of awe or this sense of just concern that makes us pause. Fear is a good thing. It makes us pause and evaluate, wait, am I doing what I should be doing? Is this the right way? Is this not? Am I, is this safe? So fear is a good thing. Fear is okay when it doesn't control you. It should lead you to walk in wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Fear ought to help you walk in wisdom. But the spirit of fear takes that God-given gift of fear and then takes the God-given gift of imagination. See, imagination, God gave it to you. You're able to see and imagine things that aren't there and to wonder and, and to come up with, with alternatives and solutions. It's, it's great. Your imagination is awesome and can do great things. But when fear combines with imagination, now you begin to see things that aren't there and they overwhelm you, causing anxiety to rise up, worry. In fact, the spirit of fear is the spirit of false prophecy, speaking things in and over your life that will not happen, that more than likely won't happen. And aren't there, but they cause you to be so overwhelmed because you become afraid when you realize that you are not in control, when you're not sure and you you can't control the world and circumstances. Listen, you know, I told you a minute ago that demons, demons study us to find when we are most vulnerable. They find those moments and they attack when they see a window of opportunity. But you know what happens with fear? 
Sometimes demons don't wait for those windows uh, windows of opportunity. Sometimes they create those windows of opportunities for themselves. And fear is one of those. See, you and I are the most vulnerable to be attacked by the enemy when we are tired. Emotionally and mentally and spiritually tired. And I don't know about you, but there is nothing that can wear a person out more than when they wrestle with fear, worry, and anxiety. When those things run amok, man, that can wear anybody out. And when you're too tired to fight the enemy, you're not going to walk in victory. Because one of the things that fear does is fear makes you to believe your doubts, and it also gets you to doubt your beliefs. That's what fear does. Fear gets you to doubt the truth that you believe in, and then it gets you to believe in the things that you doubt, and it amplifies those, and it makes you feel guilty, and then overwhelms you. It actually makes you believe that your giants are bigger than your God. And that keeps you from running to God sometimes because you don't think he's big enough. See, fear stands against the knowledge of God because it makes us believe that God's not there or God's not able, God's not big enough when he is. In fact, 1 John 4, 18, God says, not John, not God, John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love is not our perfect love. It is the perfect love of God. The love of God is what helps us to not be overwhelmed and overcome by fear. In fact, that's the number one commandment. You know, the, the greatest commandment Jesus said was to love others as I have loved you. Love God and love others as, as I have loved you. That's the number one commandment. But the most repeated commandment in the Bible is what? Do not be afraid. Do not, now, he's not saying don't feel fear ever. No, he's saying don't surrender to fear. Don't listen to the lie. Walk in the truth. Walk in the, the truth that is the love of God because fear cannot remain. The chains of fear cannot remain where the love of God reigns. Where the love of God reigns, the chains of fear cannot remain. And that perfect love will drive out fear. And it will not, and you will not be overcome and overwhelmed by it. Because greater is the God that is in you than, than that whatever demon and spirit that comes against you. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of spirit of power and love and self-control. That is the spirit of God. That we can take our thoughts, even the fearful thoughts, captive and have control over those. That's all in 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 7. Now, one other big one, man, that we all need to be careful with, how do the, the kind of demons that the devil deploys to undo us and to end us, it's the spirit of Jezebel. Man, Jezebel, Jezebel is something. The spirit of Jezebel goes by many different names in the Old and the New Testament, but there's a lot of things that characterize this demon. One of those is that this demon gets us to rationalize our sin and helps us to blur the lines of sin. Making us think, well, that's okay. We, we can do that. Or it's just a little. It's not that big of a deal. Okay, that's her. And she makes some what's one of those, you know, and I, I know I could be a better Christian. I know I can follow God better. I know there's areas in my life that I need to improve on, but I'm fine. I'm okay. That's the spirit that gets us to rationalize where we're at. See, when you and I begin to rationalize sin, we create, we build a stronghold ourselves. The enemy gets us to build our own prisons. That will eventually imprison us. That's what happens. We build our own prisons that end up imprisoning ourselves when we rationalize sin and rationalize the lie and replace a truth with the lie. 
See, Je one of the powerful means that Jezebel will get us to do, one of the lines that she will get us to cross is the sexual sins. She seduces us and gets us to cross lines and boundaries that are outside of the marriage bed, outside of what God has intended. Man, look, every sin is, is sin before the eyes of God, but some sins are more damaging than others towards us, towards ourselves. And sexual sins have an incredible potential to be destructive because it's they combine the soul and the spirit and the body in ways that few other things do. And when it's when you're young and when, and when you start experimenting and or, or somebody abuses you, th this opens up a door. This opens up the door to something that could be hard for many people to wrestle with and deal with for a long time. But she knows, man, the devil, the devil realizes and this, this spirit knows and gets us to believe that, hey, you can be a Christian and still walk in purity, yet, you know, you, you can mess around with your girlfriend. You're going to get married anyways, right? You're going to get married. You guys are going to be together forever. So it's okay. It's okay to start doing things now. God's fine with it. It's okay to move in and have sex before marriage. You know, God's cool. It's 2019. It's all good. That's that's Jezebel. In fact, one of the biggest ones, big, biggest lies that she gets us to buy in is this one. Because listen, I want you to know, be careful because there is a hook inside of the look. There's a hook inside of the look. What do I mean by that? See, the spirit of Jezebel gets us to think, look, it's okay to look. Just don't touch. It's fine. Look, you can watch that show that has, you know, sex scenes in it. It's okay if you're not doing it. It's fine as long as you you can look. Just don't touch. I know you're you're seeing you're just look scrolling through in that that instant that model Instagram models feed. You know you you're just looking. There's no harm in looking. There's no harm in checking out that girl over there. There's no harm in checking out that guy over there. You're just looking. It's just playful flirting when you're talking to that one person. It's not going anywhere. You're not touching. It's fine. That's a lie. Man, that's a lie. You know how I know? You know how it's a lie? Because Jezebel says it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, even if you look, it's like if you touched. Jesus said, if you look, it's like if you touch. And Jezebel, what does she do? She flips it. No, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. Man, no, that's Jezebel. That's, that's a lie. And if we cross enough of those boundaries before we realize it, we are ensnared and enslaved to a lot. In fact, one of the big things that Jezebel gets us hooked on, you know what it is? It's the rush. See, the thing about Jezebel, she gets us to do sneaky things. You, all, you and I know, man, you know what it's like to get the rush of doing the wrong thing and you be sneaking about it. May nobody know you, 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 you plot and you strategize. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And not get caught, not get busted. Be honest. It's exciting, right? No one's seeing, no one knows what you're doing. It's exciting. There's a rush to all of that. And it feels good. It feels fun, right? Man, she gets us to buy into that lie that there's nothing better than this. See, what happens when you get addicted to the rush? You know what happens? When that rush is no longer gone, you chase the lust. You chase the rush. There's a lot of Christian couples who were, you know, messing around sexually before they got married. And it was it was exciting. Sex was exciting because it was a rush. They were doing something wrong and they were hiding it. And then they got married. And then guess what was uh, not there? The rush. Because now they're doing things in a God honoring way. You're having sex with the person you married and that's it's OK now. And now it's OK. Guess where Jezebel isn't? There's no rush. And so then sex becomes boring. And there's a lot of people who get frustrated. Like, what happened? 
It was used to be fun. Now it's not because you weren't doing things the right way. You got hooked and addicted on the lie that there was nothing better than that. And then you buy into the lie that there's nothing better than the rush. So you keep looking to manufacture the rush. So Christian couples end up bringing pornography into their marriage. They try to do things to spice things up, but they do things in a way that is corrupt, not God honoring. Or they flirt with the receptionist and they flirt with that new guy down at the office and and, and they do things that just enough to get that little rush. They, they put the ladies put the thirst traps on Instagram. Even though they're in a healthy relationship, they put them thirst traps out there just to see if they still got it because they're addicted to the rush. But let me tell you a lie, because that's just Jezebel saying there's nothing better than the rush. But that's a lie. I'm going to call her out on it right now. Because there's no greater rush than being loved by God, forgiven of your sins, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Point blank, period. Nothing better. There is no greater rush than that. I'm going to call her out on that, because there's no greater rush. But we and I, look, you all, especially the believers, we got to be careful that we are not opening doors. Because the devil, the devil will not just wait. He won't wait for us to open a door. Man, he'll, he'll, crack, he'll wait for us to crack a window, pull a shade back, whatever. He'll find his way in. But we got to make sure that we're not purposeful and we're not willingly doing that. You know, how dumb would we be? How dumb would you be if you walked over to your door and you saw somebody who was knocking on your door and be like, excuse me, hello, who are you? Hey, yeah, I'm here to rob you. Oh, okay, hold on a second. And you unlock the door, open it, and walk back inside the house. How dumb would you be? How dumb would you be? Well, that's what we got to make sure that we're not willingly opening doors to the enemy. And we do that through, there's forms of entertainment that you got to be careful with. You know, even look, I love the Marvel movies. But you got to watch those Marvel movies and you have to be, there's things you have to be careful about. Because there's witchcraft and dark things and, and you know, necromancing and talking to the dead. And there, there's a lot of things in these. There's, you know, bad language and, and even, you know, sexual, you know, promiscuity in these Marvel movies. You have to look at these things. And if, if that convicts you, then you don't watch it. That, that's your priority. That's your prerogative. That's cool. But when I watch these and if my kid is seeing any of those things, I got to tell him, look, I, I point out the good. Hey, listen, this is who we need to be. But hey, did you notice that, that, that? Yeah, look, that that's not... We can't be like that. That's not right. And we got to make sure that you're, you don't glorify, you don't agree with the things that, that the world is glorifying. We got to be careful that we don't just unwillingly accept things. And we're like, oh, and we start going into different things in the occult or crossing boundaries, crossing lines, crude joking, just because we saw it in a movie or we saw this and that. We got to grow, raise our kids up as well. They need to understand what is truth, what is not, what is good. What, let them call it out. But we got to be careful with the movies that we watch, the shows that we watch. Because sometimes, man, they, you've seen a movie where for no reason, and you've seen the show where they throw in a sex scene for no reason. Why? Because that's just Jezebel just throwing, that's the spirit in there just trying to get you to look and get you enticed and excited. Huh, and get you hooked on, I want to see more, I want to see more, I want to see more. That's not the directors, man. Those are the demons. And you got to be careful with the music too, man. So many of us be bumping music and we don't even realize what they're saying. Look, Ariana Grande got a song out there that goes, break up with your girlfriend because I'm bored. That's the chorus of the song. Break up with your girlfriend, I'm bored. She can't compare to me. She can't do this. Man, that's Jezebel, 100%. She ain't even hiding it. Break up with your girlfriend because I'm bored. I'm like, no, man. Like, we, and we, you know how many little girls are singing that and jamming, singing it out like it's their anthem? Man, what kind of, what kind of, 
kids are we raising? If the kids, like, oh man, pastor, just a song, man. You need to chill. Like, no, nah, you don't see the hook in your mouth when you're singing that song. Because when you casually, again, the angel, the dove, demons walk around like angels of light. We got to be careful that we don't buy into the lies. We got to be careful because then we open doors to something worse, something bigger. And here's the thing. When you open up the door to a demon, them demons set up a gym inside your soul. And if you don't cast them out, they start working out. And the longer they linger, the stronger they get and the harder it becomes to break free. That's the truth. And don't tell me that, oh, pastor, look, man, Christians, we can't be possessed by demons. Look, you can, there's examples in the Old Testament and in the New of even believers being influenced by demons. Okay? There, it's in there. We have to, so none of us are immune. We have to guard ourselves. And why does Paul constantly say, don't walk into the dark? Because if you walk in darkness, you're going to walk under the influence of demons and the love of, your, uh, the love of God will grow cold in you. You need to walk in the light. Listen, you need to be aware of the devil's endgame. The devil, his endgame is to end you. The devil wants to destroy you. But the good news is that God, he has an endgame. And his endgame is to end the work of darkness and to restore you. That's his endgame. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. But you need to be able to know and approach your enemy. You need to know your God and know your enemy. In fact, Peter, Peter was one who Jesus rebuked Peter and Jesus looked dead at Peter's face and said, get behind me, Satan, because Peter was being influenced by the devil and he didn't realize it. He thought he was helping. He thought he was doing what he needed to do. And Jesus looked at him straight in the face and said, Peter, get me. He looked at Peter and said, devil, get behind me. You shut your mouth because that's a lie. So Peter got some experience. So that's why Peter, in first, and he tells us in his first letter, 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sober-minded. I love that phrase, sober-minded. Because what's the opposite of sober, right? Being under the influence of something, right? When you take a foreign substance, alcohol, uh, drugs, whatever, you, you take it in excess, it throws your senses off, and, and you could... Do something out of character, or you can hurt yourself or get hurt. You can even die. You overdose, right? So here he's saying be sober-minded. How do you be sober in the mind? What can get your mind drunk or high in a spiritual format? Well, easy, lies. Lies are the foreign substance that can get your mind to just do things out of character and to keep you hidden and to destroy you. So we need to be sober-minded. How do you sober up? I, I know this because I Google it, not by experience. I'm being sarcastic. Well, hey, look, this happens. You ever heard somebody, if somebody was drunk off their butt, all right, if somebody was drunk off their butt, what do they need to do? They got to sober up, right? And how do you sober up? You need, the, you, know, you need a grease coat. You need to hydrate. You need water. You need to drink bread. You know, I'm not telling you all this, so now you have excuses. Please don't do that. It ain't good to be drunk or none of that. Don't abuse it, all right? No, don't. I'm not giving you permission, but that's what people do. And listen, we need to be, we need to sober up. There's a lot of us, there's a lot of Christians out there and we need to sober up. We need to, the grease coat of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, man, to sober up. You and I, we, we need to, we need to eat bread. We need to eat the bread of life. That is the word of God. We need to drink from the word, the water of the word of God to sober up. We need that living water to sober up and to stay sober so that the enemy doesn't take us. The, 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 we don't fall prey to the enemy who walks around, like Paul Peter said, like a roaring lion. So be careful not to fall into extremes. you got to be watchful. 
don't fall into two extremes and think, man, pastor, I don't believe in demons. I've never been influenced by a demon in my life. Okay, right now, uh, you are. It's called pride. Okay, there it is. There it is, all right? But listen, don't be overly dismissive of this topic, but at the same time, don't go nuts. Don't go to the other extreme and think that there's a demon behind everything and everyone, and you be casting out people left and right. Nah, man, chill. Don't go to both extremes. We need to be sober-minded. You got to understand. Look, there's th- there, you cannot, I heard Pastor Robert Moore say this, you cannot cast out your flesh and you cannot disciple your demons. Sometimes the things that you struggle with, there's some of us that are walking in defeat because we are trying to bring discipline to an area of life that is a demonic stronghold. You cannot discipline your demons. And then there's other things that we blame. Oh, the devil made me do it. You know, it's like, no, man, you're falling into that because you have no, you have not disciplined your flesh. You can't cast out your flesh and disciple your demons. You got to disciple your flesh, discipline your flesh. Uh, By the way, disciples of Jesus are Jesus followers who develop disciplines that are like Jesus. Discipline of the worship, of the word of God, of love and community, acts of service. You can't call yourself a disciple if you ain't disciplined. That's what it is. Disciples grow in discipline. And you need to be able to discipline your flesh and cast out your demons so they don't work out and get bigger. We need to fill up with the truth because the water of the word of God, the word of God is our weapon against this devil. Now, I don't think that Peter misspoke when he described the devil as a roaring lion because you know in nature, you know what a roaring lion is? Roaring lions are old lions who are don't have the cardio and the stamina to chase down their prey and they've lost a lot of their teeth. And so they can't kill when they finally grab a hold of their prey. So what they do is they roar and they intimidate the prey to run off to the other lions that go in for the kill. Listen, the devil is a roaring lion. The devil wants to destroy you and intimidate you with the lies to get you to funnel you into these demons so they can kill you off. He wants to destroy you. Yeah, you know what? It's good for you and I, it's good for us that the devil is an old toothless lion because all he knows how to do is roar because Jesus removed the devil's teeth when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. Jesus removed his teeth. He's nothing but a toothless roaring lion. But you know what got teeth? Do you know what got some sharp teeth? The truth of God. The truth of God got some teeth. And Jesus' bite, Jesus got a bad bite that the enemy cannot cannot handle can't so we need to make sure that we are sober minded about the devil's end game for us and our approach to opening doors unwillingly to demons now if this makes you uncomfortable please don't freak out because Sometimes when we see these things and we recognize, wait, I have a pattern. Oh, my gosh, that's a pattern in my life. Oh, my gosh, there's a demon. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And, you know, look, don't freak out because I know sometimes the light may show up and and it may seem intimidating. But listen, God's not trying to expose you to make you feel bad or to freak out, okay? God's not trying to expose you. He is trying to restore you and resurrect you by getting you to step out from the darkness of your grave and into the light where darkness can no longer have a hold on you. Don't be afraid of the light. He's trying to restore you, man, not just expose you. He's trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. You ain't got nothing to fear. 
You ain't got nothing to fear of these toothless lions. Because greater is your God who is in you than who stands against you. So to, to finish, I want to come back to the, the chess piece that I talked about at the beginning. See, for if you ever played chess, you know that for the majority of the game, the king doesn't do anything. You know, the king is very is protected. Any move that the king does is strategic in order to protect the king. But you know what happens when the player enters the end game? For a strategic chess player, you know what happens? When players enter the end game, the king goes on the attack. That's how the end game is played. The king now goes in on the attack. And because the eternal state of your soul is not a game, I want you to know that King Jesus is on the attack, wanting to bring an end to the devil's assignments over your lives today. And it can happen. It can happen. And I praise God. I praise God because when we trust in what Jesus has done for us through repentance, when we repent, we are recognizing, God, I have opened up doors to things. My, it is my fault. And by the way, you know one of the biggest ways that you open up a door? Sin. Disobeying the truth. Disobeying the word of God. You got to repent. You got to say, Lord, forgive me for opening doors. Close them in the name of Jesus and Lord, drive them out and I cast them out in Jesus' name. And I renounce all work of darkness. That's the only way it happens. But you know what? Praise God. Because Jesus, when we know this, when we trust in what Jesus has done for us through repentance, the Lord will undo the work of darkness in us through his goodness. And you can look your demons in the face and say, checkmate. I place my faith in Jesus. Greater is he who is in me, stands against you. Checkmate. Jesus won.